Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. But I got to say, the hardest thing was telling Robert and Ernie that I was leaving. You could put a monkey working with Dale Earnhardt. He could at least win one freaking race. We won the Daytona 500. Hell, we went to Rockingham, had to use a provisional to start the race. And it didn't get any better. If I do look back on my career, I almost wished I'd have just rode it out at Robert Yates Racing. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, this week, there was a pretty big announcement about some things that you've got going on. Why don't you tell us about it? 
Oh, I'd be glad to. Uh, I am fortunate enough to join the staff of FrontStretch.com. I'll be writing uh, bi-weekly commentaries for the uh, website. And I welcome this opportunity. I'm looking forward to it very much. What are some of your column ideas going to be? What kind of things are you going to be writing about? Are you going to be talking about NASCAR history? Are you going to be talking about current events? What are you going to be talking I'm, about? I'm going to mix it up. I'm in the position of being able to mix the history with the current events, if you know what I mean. I mean, okay. I, can tell you, I can say, hey, guess what? This has happened before. <laughs> you know, things like that. <laughs> yeah. Now, what's happened this year ain't happened before, but uh, there's a lot of things throughout NASCAR's past that are just absolutely representative of what's going on today. And I think that's pretty neat. Now, don't forget to put in a plug for the Scene Vault podcast. Oh, no problem. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did this come about? Uh, do you know Tom and the folks over there at Front Stretch, or how did it come about? Well, no, I knew Tom only slightly through his website. And uh, I, I'll be very honest with you. I just inquired one day. I just wrote an email and said, hey, could you use an old broken down motorsports writer <laughs> in so many words? And lo and behold, I did get an answer and we talked about it a little bit and came to an agreement and everything I think is going to work out just fine. Well, that is awesome. Congratulations, man. I'm going to look forward to seeing what you have to say on the site. Well, I appreciate it. There's one on you. I'd find one. <laughs> so you're the guy that read it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Rick. <laughs> Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the third and final installment of our interview with Larry McReynolds. And Steve, this has been a very popular interview that we did sure. with Larry Mack, him talking about Davey, him talking about Ernie, and then kind of the buzz that was created last week and today was the talk of the possibility that Earnhardt might have driven for Robert Yates Racing. Now, again, I don't know how serious those conversations were. There's a part of me that wants to say that it was probably just a leveraging tactic to maybe get a little more out of GM Goodwrench or out of a contract with Richard Childress. But just the fact, just the fact that there were conversations about Dell Earnhardt moving to Ford, that just blows my mind. Well, as I said many times in our last podcast, Dale was not a Ford fan, but as we learned, he asked for a salary of $1 million. <laughs> now, let's face it, Rick. If somebody is willing to pay you a flat salary of $1 million before you get your share of the winnings, I know I would think very hard about that. So if Dale had gotten that, what the heck do you think he would have done? $1 million. That's about what we're getting out of the same vault podcast, correct? That's right. That's right. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I'm getting twice as much out of it as you are. <laughs> okay, listeners, that was a joke. We are not getting a million dollars. Absolutely, positively, no way, no how. <laughs> but Steve, this week, Larry Mack tells us about his topsy-turvy time with Dell Earnhardt and being his crew chief. They won the Daytona 500 together. And then just a few short months later, they parted ways. They went through 1997 and did not win a race. And that was a very tough time for Larry McReynolds because he actually called that the toughest year of his career. 
believe it or not, but that's what he said. He said that 1997, going winless with Richard Childress and Dell Earnhardt, people were saying that he was a Ford spy that was sent over to sabotage Dell Earnhardt and all that stuff. But then, Steve, he talked about how he and Dell kind of came to terms while they were waiting on their daughters to return from a school field trip. And then we hear about Larry Mack's decision to move to the Fox broadcasting booth. Well, you know, it, that 97 season was a very tough year for Larry because being winless, he thought, maybe it's me. Have I lost my touch? Now, he would come to learn a bit later that it wasn't exactly him causing the problems, and that did ease his concerns somewhat. But 97 was still a difficult year, going winless like that. I remember sitting down with crewman Will Lynn, a very popular and longtime crewman over there at RCR. And he sat down beside me and looked at me and just sort of sighed. Yeah. And I said, what's the matter? He said, now I know how them other guys feel when you don't win a race. He wasn't happy. In our second segment, we are going to go back to the June 11th, 1998 issue of Winston Cup Scene. That covered that year's Richmond Spring Race, and that just so happened to be Larry Mack's last race as Dale Earnhardt's crew chief. Now, (laughs) Terry Labonte won the race after a late race red flag allowed the race to finish under green. Now, today, that wouldn't be that big a deal. That happens all the time now. But that was the first time, basically, that that had ever happened, and it kind of came out of left field. That wasn't a decision that I know of that had been discussed with competitors. NASCAR just decided to throw the red flag, and that left the Dale Jarrett uh, livid <laughs> after, the, after the race at the gas pumps. And then Jeff Gordon was mad at Rusty Wallace after Rusty dumped him, And Steve, this race is probably one of my best memories of my time working on sidebars because not only did I have the Jeff Gordon sidebar and him being mad at Rusty, I had the sidebar on Dale Jarrett being mad at NASCAR (laughs) and Terry Labonte for getting into him. So after that race, I didn't know which way to turn. (laughs) You walked into a hornet's nest. (laughs) But Steve, also in this issue, you wrote a commentary about how the good old days might have been simpler, but they weren't necessarily better. Well, I believe that to this day. Simpler doesn't mean better. 22 years later, what you wrote in this column still applies. I believe so. Yeah. Steve, this week we also have new Patreon support from Tom Wilcox, who was the brother of the late, great Tim Wilcox who was one of our photographers. Yes, indeed. He was a great one, scene and illustrated. Yes, he was. And also, we have new Patreon support from Paul Kuliev. So, Paul, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. (laughs) We kind of discussed it over messaging, but hopefully I got that across. Paul Kuliev helped us out on Patreon. So, Paul and Tom, thank y'all. Thank y'all. Y'all have helped us get to where we are you've helped us put together the podcast 
that hopefully people are enjoying. I think the feedback that we're getting says that they are. And Steve, we also got some PayPal love from Jamie Reynolds, one of my buddies from up in Sparta. I've talked about Jamie and our friendship before, but he sent me a message on Facebook. He said, I've listened to enough of the podcast. Here's some support on PayPal. Listen, I appreciated that from, from Jamie, especially given how far back we go. So please support us on Patreon. If you can support us on PayPal, support Keyware, our presenting sponsor, and also support Brian Kelb and all the just amazing vintage racing apparel that he has. Just amazing stuff that he is offering up for sale on his Etsy shop. So if you can help us out on Patreon, you can do that on a monthly basis at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the scene bought podcast or if you would prefer to just do a one-time show of support you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene bought podcast speaking of richard childress racing and dell earnhardt kelly earnhardt has brokered a lot of deals for dell jr but she helped put you in that car well kind of sort of <laughs> um we we were you know i had accomplished what i wanted to accomplish with ernie we got him back to victory lane mm-hmm. you know we we won loudon in july of 96 and came back about a month later and won one september richmond race and i never will forget walking into the media center at loudon and going Ladies and gentlemen of the press, mission complete. You know, he's he's back and he's won a race. And a lot of this was self-inflicted. Is I'm the world's worst, even today, I won't say no. If I can if I can connect the dots to make something work, I will I will work to make make it work. Whether it's something to do with my job, something not to do with my job, I just don't like telling people no. I, I, you know, I don't want to be told no, and I work hard not to tell people no sometimes if it's even to my own destruction. And when we finally decided to do this second deal, Robert kind of shoved the thing on my shoulders. He says, now you're still, the 28's your baby, but I need you to put this second deal together. You know, I want you to kind of be, that really wasn't competition director title, but he said, I kind of want you to be the team manager. Okay, I can do that. And, I mean, Robert took great, great care of me monetarily my whole time I was with him. So, you know, I got everybody hired for the 88 car and you know, got Todd Parrott hired and all of the guys and started getting tractor and trailers ordered and cars ordered and all the things. And we were having to kind of expedite this now because now Ernie's going to run two or three races before the 95 season's over. But I think because of everything that I had been through mentally – 93, 94, 95, 96. Throw in 92. Basically, my whole time at Robert Yates Racing, everything I nobody's fault, nobody's fault, but just what the cards that we and I were dealt. And then I think to take on the task of putting that second deal together and work night and day. Worked half days on Thanksgiving. All day Christmas Eve, all day New Year's Eve. Did I think we did at least take Christmas Day off? I, I, I just getting wore out, just mentally and physically wore out. Got to where when I woke up, 
I didn't want to hit the floor and drive down to Dwell Street. Just mm. just wore out. Yeah. Mainly mainly mentally. And I guess about the time that I'm thinking about this, we're at Rockingham in the fall of '95. Saturday afternoon, final practice is over, and they're closing the garage. '95 or '96? In the '90, in the '96. Okay, all right. In the '96. So they're closing the garage, and um, you know, we'd had a great season. You know, 88 had won four races, won the Daytona 500, won the Brickyard, won the Bush Clash, the first race it hit the racetrack. We'd won a couple of races with the 28. The 88 had been in the championship hunt, and we'd finished in well inside the top ten. Unbelievable year. Just wore out. And we were at Rockingham, and the garage was closed, and they always had to come run the 28 group out. The guy was always the last one to leave, <laughs> just do one more thing. Yeah. And Gary Nelson came over, and he personally, which he was used to with us, pulled the door down and said, garage is closed, guys. And him and I were kind of walking out together, and he says, what are you going to do next year? And I went, I don't know, Gary. Why do you ask? He said, I don't need to get involved in this. He said, I'm the series director. I said, well, you asked that for a reason. He said, I just know there's a group in here really, really is, wants to get you to come be the crew chief. I said, well, who? He said, ah, I, don't, I can't get involved. I said, come on, Gary. Don't, yeah, you done started. You, you started it. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. All you were doing was running me out of the garage. Yeah. He said, I know that three bunch is really interested you because Andy had left the end of 95, and David Smith and, and, and Bobby Hutchins kind of had tag-teamed at 96, and they'd won a couple of races, but I think they knew that was short-term. And so, anyhow, I, I, I didn't think much about it, and I, I went back to the motorhome. That was our first year that Linda and I had a motorhome, and I said, man, I had the weirdest conversation with Gary Nelson. She, she says, well, what do you think? I said, I, I don't know. I have no idea. So nothing else was said. So the following week was the World Series. And Linda, my wife, for our anniversary, which our anniversary is October 29th, she had gotten us two tickets to a World Series game down in Atlanta. Oh, wow. I was a huge brace. Cool. Man. Yeah. So I don't know how she got them, where she got them, whatever. But so we go and we're, we're kind of in left field out in the outfield and we go to sit down and there's two seats beside us over here and you know finally two people walk up and it's kelly earnhardt her friend <laughs> this is weird yeah so anyhow we spoke and talked a little bit i didn't know kelly that well i mean hello just speaking how you doing in this cool world series game well i look over there about halfway through the game and now we are we are into the air where People are starting to get cell phones. And I'm looking over there, and she's on her cell phone. And I, I thought to myself, who the hell comes to a World Series game and talks on her cell phone? Everybody. So we're in the middle of an inning, and she taps me on the shoulder, and she says, I said, I want you to a World Series game. <laughs> hey, Earnhardt, you going to do this damn deal or not? It's like, what deal? I don't, I don't know what deal you're talking about. And I'm at a World Series game. So anyhow, they did reach out to me the following week, and I, I met with Richard in Atlanta, went out to his motorhome on Saturday, kind of during the, whether it was the ARCA, Xfinity, I don't know what was running back then. And we talked, and, you know, we didn't get too serious. And then the following week is when we went to Japan. And I felt like, 
a wrestling tag team. It was almost embarrassed because all the teams are kind of on the same flight going over from, I think we were flying from uh, Atlanta to Tokyo. Tokyo. Yeah. And Linda and I are up in business class, and here, here comes one three member after the other. And they sit down. Linda had, had wandered back mixing and mingling, and they kept sitting one at a time. You think you're going to do this deal? It's like, guys, this there's Robert Yates right over there. No, it's stop. And so, <laughs> you know, and Earnhardt wore me out in Japan the whole time we were over there. And finally Richard got in touch with me when we got back from Japan. And I, I met him over at his condo at, at Charlotte Motor Speedway the day after Thanksgiving on Friday. I never went to Welcome, North Carolina. I, I had already taken the job in in done before I ever went to welcome. But I got to say, the hardest thing was was telling Robert and, and Ernie that I was, I was leaving. Um, they didn't accept it very well at all. Uh, I didn't expect them to. My feelings probably would have been hurt had they have been delighted about it. <laughs> but it was definitely a tough decision, but it's one I needed to do. I just, not because of it being Dale and the three car, I just needed a fresh start without everything that had happened over the last four or five years. You go to the 1997 Daytona 500, Dale's tried and tried and tried, never won the thing. So you've got a lot on your mind. It's your first race as his crew chief and race morning. You have to deal with a couple of wayward crew members. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I kind of always, as a crew chief, tried to walk that tightrope of, of being cordial and treating the guys like I wanted to be treated, but also make sure I kept separation where I did my job. Yeah. Because I knew ultimately that no matter who screwed up or what happened or what went wrong, that, that I was the guy responsible that my office was the one next to the end of the hall. Yeah, the owner was at the end of the hall. Mine was the one next to him. And we had had a lot of meetings before going to Daytona, and I kind of laid out my expectations to the road crew and to the pit crew. I said, I'm not the guy that's going to go beating on everybody's hotel room to see if you're in, but I said, I'm just asking you to be smart. And I said, you know, this is our first race as a, as, as, as a team like we are. And we know how well our driver runs there. We've had some good testing during the offseason. Let's don't let a good time one night stand in the way of that. And, and Richard was always adamant about flying the pit crew in the day before. Just from a standpoint, you know, he wanted to make sure we didn't have any glitches in, in air travel or whatever. And so some of, the, some of the pit crew was already there because they worked on the car, but they, they flew down Thursday for the duel, flew back after the duel, we'd won the duel, and then they flew back Saturday afternoon. And so they don't even really come to the track on Saturday. So Sunday morning, I don't know, the garage opened about 6 o'clock, and we're uncovering the car, and, you know, the guys are starting to go through the race checklist, what we hadn't gotten the day, done the day before, and the pit crew's there. And, and, and I just kind of kept looking around, and finally, I asked, uh, I think, Jerry Haley, one of our pit crew guys, I said, where, can't even remember one of the guy's names. I said, where is so-and-so? And he had this look on his face like the cat that I swallowed know nothing. a canary. <laughs> I said, no, where are they at? He, he just went, I said, you, you know, are they not here? He said, Larry, 
we called and called, and we beat and bang on their door, and we finally had to leave because we were running late. So I said, they're not even here. He said, no. I said, you have no idea where they're at. He said, we don't. He said, we beat on their door. We called their room. We have no idea where they're at. So, okay, let me figure out how to deal with this now and start taking care of some stuff I needed to take with the car, with the car and sure enough, here they come about an hour and a half late. And walking in, like, nothing was wrong. And that pissed me off as much as anything. If you're going to do this, at least be a little bit humble. <laughs> and what you guys up to? Well, we overslept. Our alarm didn't go off. I said, so you didn't hear the beating on the door. You didn't hear the phone ringing. And, Rick, they just wrecked with alcohol. I mean, I could smell them 10 feet away. And I said, you two need to go up in the lounge and don't do nothing. Just go up there and sit down. Well, we need to start. I said, no, don't worry about the pits. Go up there in the lounge and sit down. So I handled a few other things, and, and I went over to Richard's Motorhome, and uh, Steve Ramey that drove us, I said, do you think Richard's up? She, he said, yeah, he's up. Um, he said he actually stayed over at Spruce Creek, and he just got here a little bit ago. I think he's up in there having breakfast. So I knocked on the door and went up in there, and... He said, he, I didn't even say nothing. He says, what's the matter? I said, I got a bad situation, Richard. And I told him. He says, well, what do you want to do? I said, they're not going to pit the car today. And he says, Larry, what are you going to do? I said, we know we've got backups. And I said, Richard, if I don't, if I don't drop this hammer now, this is, this is training puppies from my standpoint. I said, because... You and I both know I was not welcomed with complete open arms from everybody. There was a lot yeah, of them that yeah, did, but there was yeah. a lot of them that didn't. And I said, if I let this go, I'll have no control. And he says, okay, I stand behind you. But he said, I just want you to double, triple think this out of what you're doing here. And, and this uh, isn't Pocono in July. This is the Daytona, Daytona 500. 500. And knowing we had a car that could win a race. But we used our two backups, and Rick, oh, we had the most up-and-down day on pit road that you could ever have. We'd have one good stop and two bad stops, and Dale never said a word, and he'd work his way back to the frickin' front. And thank God, with about 20, 25 laps to go, we didn't have to make any more pit stops, and he'd found his way to the front. And with about 20 to go, I looked at Richard, and I says, what do you think? He went, been here way too many times. Caution. <laughs> With about 11 to go, I knew what he was talking about. We were barrel rolling down the back straightaway. You know, the car had 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 picked up. I think he had, he had like, caved one of the fenders in a little bit, and the car in clean air just didn't drive very good. It pushed, and it picked up a push up off turn two, and Gordon got into our left rear. Almost the same thing that happened with Daryl. With Davey at Pocono, got in that left rear, and things just started barrel rolling, not to the extent that, that Davies did. And um, <laughs> that was – it wasn't funny. I look back now, and it was, it was comical. It was hilarious because I'm watching the monitor, and I see this car <laughs> barrel roll down the back straightaway. Yeah. And I see Dale get out. <laughs> and so I start walking down pit road. You know, you had to walk yeah. all the way down yeah. to the entrance before you turn in the garage area to go over there to the infield care center, which I knew he was okay. So I walked to the ambulance. I saw him walk around the car, and I saw him walk to the ambulance. But just about the time, because we, we were pitting almost at the opposite far end. 
About the time I got to about to turn in the garage, I saw something black go by. And I went, no, it couldn't be. Well, yeah, it could. <laughs> and I looked down pit road, and there the three cars sat in the pits. And there's nobody there. We all have left the pits. So we sprinted back down there and duct taped and bell wired and rip sheet whatever metal. we yeah. could do, yeah. shoelaces, whatever it took, because we just wanted to finish this race. And um, we finished it. And the one thing that was cool about finishing that race, 97 was a very trying year because we didn't win a race. But one thing I'm very proud of, I think we did end up finishing fourth or fifth in the points. We had no DNFs that year. We finished every single race that year. And, and I always was a, a big stickler, in, and I know Richard Childress was too, about finishing races. You mentioned the fact that you went winless in 1997. Being Dale Earnhardt's crew chief, of all people, that came with a lot of expectations. And I would say that those expectations weighed pretty heavy the longer you went in the 97 season. You know, the expectations with on no one's part was any greater than my own. Right. You know, I left Robert Yates Racing where I had won a ton of races with three different drivers, and I'm thinking if I can take what I know to probably what we all look at as the greatest race car driver ever to grip a steering wheel, Holy smoly. This will be a snowball going down a hill. They'll never stop. <laughs> it won't be a matter if we can get his eighth championship. It'll be a matter how many more we can get. His expectations were high. Every, we all we all had them. And, you know, there's a lot said about Dale and I didn't get along, and there that's probably way away from the truth. We actually got along quite well, but we just couldn't connect with this race car. And I think our personalities were so different. As you probably know, observing me for all these years, I'm a little bit high-strung and up on the chip. <laughs> and you know Dale, he, he's, he's laid back when he's, he was in the middle of, of eight wide, you know. And, and that probably, those, those two personalities were probably not working in our favor. But yeah, 97, outside of all the ancillary things that I had to endure throughout my years as a crew chief with Davey getting killed and Ernie getting hurt and toughest year I've ever had in my life. 1997? Yes. No it's, kidding. Just, wow. The, I go to the three car and we go winless. We go winless. How in the world? You could put a monkey working with Dale Earnhardt and he could at least <laughs> win one freaking race and we can't even win a race. <laughs> and it was, it got tough. I'm telling you, it got tough. Because I was starting to get accusations from fans about sabotaging Dale's career. I got accusations about Ford sending me over there to sabotage Chevrolet. You have no idea. I mean, I didn't dare leave that, that racetrack with a uniform top on. I left there in generic clothes. The irony is... And this was before social media. Oh, yeah. This, this was just <laughs> mail coming. And, oh, yeah. 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 The irony... By the end of 97, I thought I was going to have to hire a full-time bodyguard. Isn't it Seriously. Isn't it amazing? February 17th it was, I think. You're a rock star. I could have run for president and got votes. <laughs> I could have absolutely got, got yeah, votes yeah, for, yeah. for the Republican nomination. But I, I do want to, because I want to make sure and tie this in. So, you know, finally, we're just running horrible. Just horrible. We won the Daytona 500. Hell, we went to Rockingham, had to use a provisional to start the race. And it didn't get any better. 
Um, I think we did go to Talladega and finish second, but it's Talladega. He's supposed to run good there with Dale. And finally, we were a dumpster fire. The 31 was a dumpster fire. And I think, I mean, there was, there was probably the straw that broke the camel's back. Again, I was not intimidated by Dale. I respected him, but I was not intimidated by him. Is we go to Richmond, the spring race, and we qualified probably somewhere around 35th or 36th out of the 40-something cars that's there. And I walk up in the, the hauler, this, again, 98, and after qualifying, Dale, what'd it do? Oh, I don't know, just, didn't, just wasn't comfortable. And I slammed that door, and he had his little TV going, and I punched the off button. I said, look, I came here to help you win races. Yeah, I came here to win races, but I came here to help you. You've got to decide what you want to do with your career, and I'll figure out whether I want to ride along anymore or not. I cannot do this. I cannot. And anyhow, I walked out of that lounge, and I said, well, I probably shouldn't have said that, but you know what? I meant it. I just working my guts out, driving myself nuts, kicking my dog when I go home, screaming at my wife, and I wanted to. He's got to figure it out. So <laughs> Saturday night, the race, the 31 and the three battled their guts out all night long for about 19th or 20th side yeah. by side, and so we stayed in Richmond in the in the motorhome, had Linda and the kids with me on Saturday night. And Sunday morning, we just had left the racetrack, and, and Richard called. He said, what are you doing? I said, just leaving the racetrack. He said, what time do you think you might be down near the shop area? And I told him, I don't know, three hours. He said, can you, can you come here? He said, I know lending the kids with you, but he said, I'll give you a car to drive home. They can just drop you off. I said, yeah. I mean, I'm driving there expected to get fired. Um, no other thought on my mind. You know, I know who's going to come out on the short end this time. It's not going to be Dale. <laughs> yeah. So I get there. Dale's not there, but Kevin Hamlin and Mike Skinner's there. It's like, this is going to be a weird meeting. Uh, you know, what is this? So we go in Richard's office, and, and I mean, he didn't, it, it, he didn't beat around the bush. He said, guys, I've, I've been thinking about it for a few weeks. And he said, last night pretty much gave me my answer. He said, I'm going to make some changes. And he says, I've got two good race car drivers. I know Dale Earnhardt can drive a race car. And Mike, I know you can drive a race car. He said, I know I got two damn good crew chiefs. No doubt in my mind. Kevin, you, you, you're smart. You work hard. Larry, you've won races. He said, I just think I got my, my guys mixed wrong. And, and it's funny because I had worked with Mike at some tests before. And we really seemed to, we did really seem to click. I probably talked to Mike Skinner more about, I know I did, about our race car than I did Dale, you know, when I was with the three car. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't really know what to say. You know, in my heart, I knew this was probably the thing that needed to happen. And I told Richard, I need to go home and think about it. And he says, well, I respect that. But he said, I, I, I just want you to know this is not an option. This is what I'm going to do. And you, you, you have to decide if you're okay with it. He said, I'm not asking you, will you take the 31? I'm telling you, I'm swapping my two crew chiefs. And, I mean, he was cordial about it. So I drove home and talked to Linda about it. And uh, 
I said, I don't know if I want to do that. I didn't leave nothing against Mike, right. yeah. nothing against yeah. the 31. Yeah. I didn't leave Robert Yates Racing to go to work for the Lowe's 31s car with Mike Skinner. It's just not what I did. I left to go to work with Dale Earnhardt in that three car. And my wife's one that got me straight. She says, what happens if you go over there and make Mike Skinner a winner, help make him a winner? What's how how is winning a race or two or whatever with Dale going to mean more, or winning a race or two with Mike Skinner, who's never won a Cup race before? What's she said? I'm not telling you. And my wife, we've been married over 36 years, and she has never told me the words you need to has never come out of her mouth. She's there as a sounding board as I was using her that night. But you know what? I went to bed and I said, you know what? Damn, I'm gonna do this. I'm going to live with it. And uh, there was no question, no question. Both teams, boom, better right out of the box. We went to Loudon a couple, three weeks after the swap and probably could have won the race with Mike. I think we ended up finishing third or fourth. And even though, and that's a little bit of a void. You know, I worked from the spring of 98 until my final race in 2000 with Mike and, and never won a race. One Motegi, which was actually pretty darn cool. I would have never believed that would have been my last trip to Victory Lane, but it was, but it was very cool, something that I'll always treasure going over there and winning the last race in Japan. Probably the a race that haunts me even today is Atlanta, the spring of 2000. We, uh, we had led that thing. I think we ended up leading 200-something laps that day with Mike, and caution came out. Fairly late. I want to say 25, 30 laps to go. Everybody pitted. We won the battle off pit road. And when we went back racing, and I'll just use hypothetical numbers to give you the point of the story. They went back racing, and we were running probably 2940s, and the cars behind us was running 2980s and 90s, just driving away. And with about 13, 14 laps to go, that motor blew up from turn four to turn two, just scattered and that and still haunts me today that one haunts me in the 94 brickyard with ernie where we cut the tire down with a handful of laps to go you always remember the ones you won but i'm telling you there's there's things about ones that you didn't win that 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 still haunts you but um i was i don't live in any regrets i'll treasure the time that I, I got to work for Richard Childress, I treasure being able to say that I was Dale Earnhardt's crew chief and that the only time that man ever won the Daytona 500 that I was his crew chief. I don't, I don't think that makes me anything special. It's like I tell people all the time. People today say, you're the man. You're the man got him that 500. No, 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 no. I just happened to be that guy that was in place when he didn't blow up, didn't have the flat tire in the last corner of the last <laughs> yeah. lap, didn't run yeah. out of gas, didn't hit a, hit a seagull in the back stretch. I just happened to be that guy when everything fell in place. But it, it, is, it is flattering to know that. But I don't live in any regretful world. But if I do look back on my career today, I almost wished I'd have just – wrote it out at Robert Yates Racing. I, I, I think a lot of things would have been different. Uh, I don't know if, I, if I'd ever seen the Fox broadcast booth. No uh, kidding. I don't know if where Robert Yates Racing would be. 
you know, they finally gave it up in, what, 2004, 2005, which was a long time yeah, after. Yeah. But I, I don't have any regrets. Richard Childress was one of the great guy to work for and to know I worked with Dale and worked with Mike. But if I look back and if, if – if, I'm not saying if I had a do-over. Right, yeah. Not, yeah but yeah. that might be one thing I just would have evaluated a little, a little harder and a little longer and said, you know – I just I just need a breather. Let's get through the off season and let's let's pick up and try this again. That is a perfect lead in to my next question. You told me a great story about you and Dale waiting on your daughters yeah. together and kind of coming to terms about your time together. Share that if you yeah, would. Yeah, it, it it it's one of those things that didn't make me feel any better about what I had went through with Dale for basically call it a year and a half. It gave me understanding. Um, you know, during that year and a third, year and a half that I worked with Dale, if I had a dollar bill for every time he described the race car as just not comfortable, I'd be a rich man. It wasn't that it's loose in, tight off, tight in the middle, loose off not comfortable. And I never could figure out what does that mean? Does he does it what what does not comfortable mean? And I would just throw stuff at it, you know, like throwing darts. Yeah. Okay, let's yeah. try this. Well, maybe he means this. Let's throw this. And I you know, that's one reason we couldn't get anywhere. We couldn't get any better. It's just it's not comfortable. Okay, well, let's try a set of shocks. See if that makes it more comfortable. So again, Always puzzled by that, you know. Leave Robert Yates Racing and go over there with the greatest race car driver, and can't even win a race. Finally won the 500, but couldn't win a race at a non-Daytona or Talladega. Really, never even came close. So Dale had the surgery finally that that I think Doctor Branch and Teresa, the back, sorry. and Richard, yeah. you know where he got hurt at Talladega. Finally had that surgery. During the off season between '99 and 2000, and he actually come out came out of the box pretty pretty good in 2000. I, I could see it in his eyes. I could see it in the way he drove the race car. Even though I was with the 31, this guy's on the money this year. This team can win this championship. And it was May Charlotte week uh, in 2000. Racetrack had closed early, and both of our girls went to school together. Taylor and Brooke. They went to Cannon. And they were in the same grade, and they had been on like a three- or four-day field trip. And Linda had asked me when I left the racetrack, she said, Brooke, they're supposed to be back at the school the X time. What time are you leaving the racetrack? I said, that'll be perfect. I said, I'll leave the racetrack and should be there 15, 20 minutes before she gets back. Well, lo and behold, Linda calls me and says, well, the bus is about two hours late. It's like, well, I'm not driving all the way back to Mooresville right. and then turn around and go back. Yeah. I'll just sit here. Might even take me a nap. Well, I'm sitting there, and I looked across. <laughs> There's Dale sitting there. Yeah. And he had just – we almost noticed each other simultaneously. He went – so I got out, went over and sat in his truck, and we, we just – Small talk, you know, he asked me about the race car. We had actually qualified pretty good with Mike. I think we'd qualified inside the top five. And, and you know, I think Dale had another one of his barely top 20 qualifying performances. But he finally said, I want to share something with you, Larry. And I said, what is that, Dale? He said, you and I never had 
a good opportunity with each other. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, you know how many times you just would absolutely just walk off from me because I couldn't tell you what the race car was doing, and I'd use the word, it's just not comfortable. He said, I was not lying. I was not comfortable. I couldn't feel my race car. I hurt. I ached. And he said, I never believed it until I just had this surgery back during the off season. And he said, you and I never got the right chance together. And he says, I hate it. And I said, I hate it too, Dale. I said, because when I came to you, my expectations were out the roof. I said, I didn't expect to go win every race, but I expected to be a contender week in and week out and get you that eighth championship or help try to help get you that eighth championship. And I said, we just never worked. He said, well, you just never had a chance. And, you know, I, I look back and I look at that 97 Southern 500 where he passed out under the pace laps. And there were just so many things that was telling me something's not right here. Just mm-hmm. the guy that's won all these races and seven championships, can't even tell you what his race car's doing, passing out under the pace laps at Darlington. Knew it wasn't right, but, you know, you just you did the best you could. But I got out of that truck when the girls finally got back. It didn't make me feel any better, but at least I get it a little bit now. I mean, that didn't make me where I didn't do anything wrong uh, that year and a half. It was all on Dale's shoulders. That would be very unfair. But it made me understand why he couldn't tell me what his race car was doing and why he always used the phrase, I'm just not – it just wasn't comfortable. Wow. R.C. got pretty – when you told him that you were going to do TV. And that conversation was about 20 years ago. You've been doing TV full-time for 19 years. I have, yeah. Do you miss getting your hands dirty in the garage? People ask me that all the time, and absolutely. You don't do something for 20 years, 18 years as a crew chief, and no matter after one year, five years, or 20 years, not miss it. You know, the good thing is for a number of years right here in this shop we're sitting at, being able to work with Brandon and his his little racing career, I think that helped fill a little bit of the competition void along the way. But, uh, yeah, I still miss it today. Probably the biggest thing I miss, Rick, and, and I have not said this a lot because I want to be careful how I say it, but it's it's the gospel. As a crew chief for 18 years, I never needed anybody to say, that's good or that's bad. You had, you had measuring sticks every single lap you made. Mm-hmm. You had a stopwatch. You had qualifying results. You had practice results. You had race results. End of the year, you had points results. You didn't need the owner or the driver or a sponsor to say, you, man, you're doing good. Man, you're doing bad. I didn't care yeah, if yeah. they thought we were doing good or bad or not. We, we've got the measuring stick yeah, right here. Yeah. I guess now, after doing the TV for 20 years, it's still puzzling sometimes. Was that good or was that bad? You just you don't have that measuring stick. Yeah. And if... You know, I always felt secure as a crew chief as long as I did my job and performed. In this business, you're only secure as long as somebody believes you, you're you still doing good. If, if a TV executive decides he wants to twist a knob a half a turn or pull a lever a different direction and try somebody different, it doesn't matter 
what you've done, you're at the mercy. And I mean, I still love it. I, I love every single day of what I do, but it's still one of the, even after doing it for 20 years, one of the frustrating things about this industry because of where I came from is I, I had measuring sticks every day. Mm-hmm. Didn't need anybody to tell me nothing. And that as long as you worked hard and performed in one races and did what you were supposed to do, you knew that you were secure. And that's not the way it is in the, in, in the TV broadcast industry. Cool. Anything else? You didn't tell the Captain Jack story. <laughs> Have I told you that? Well, yeah, you told me that for oh. the Dell versus Daytona okay. book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not a, not it was about it was about a career-ending moment. We were, we were about five <laughs> seconds away from a career-ending moment in NASCAR. When I went to work for RCR, and you know, Richard and I had conversations along the way um, about the program over there. He said one thing I need to tell you is Bill French Jr. Him and Dale are tight, which I knew that. He said Bill actually has a radio. And periodically, he said, I'm talking very freak, uh, unfrequent, you know, not very often. He will talk to Dale on the radio. It'll be under caution. You know, it'll never interfere with anything you're doing. Yeah. But they just have that relationship. Okay, whatever. No big deal. I never heard Captain Jack in 1997. We didn't have a lot to talk about. <laughs> so we get to 1998, yeah. and I totally forgot about it. Totally forgot about it. And we get to 1998. And we're late in that 500, and that caution had come out, and I made the call for two tires, as almost everybody else did, with, what, 20, 25 to go. Won the race off pit road. We're waiting on the one to go. They give the one to go, and they're realigning, and all of a sudden I heard this voice. Hey, Sunday money, this is Captain Jack. Who in the hell is this? Who in the hell is Captain Jack? I, I, it still, I, it hadn't registered because this had been over a year. Well, you'd had your radio stolen in the '92. Yeah, from, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, but it's like I don't know who Captain Jack is, but this man's fixing to get the cussing of his life. And I looked, and Richard going, <laughs> he's pointing to the NASCAR tower. Oh, Captain Jack, okay. And and all he said was, hey, Sunday money, this is Captain Jack. Don't you think it's time? They always use fishing lingo. Don't you think it's time for you to go snag the big one? And um, that was it. He said, I'm going to do all I can, Captain Jack. And uh, that yeah. was it. Your radio transmissions weren't recorded, were they? I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> At least for that race. At least uh, for that race. I hope not. Wow. Y- you know, I talked about the tough decision, Rick, to leave Kenny Bernstein and go to Roberts. I talked about the tough decision, very tough decision, to leave Robert and go to RCR. They, they were watershed moments in, in my crew chief career, obviously. But I never had quite been faced with a fork in the road to make the decision to go do the broadcast work. You know, from 1995 through 2000, I did some broadcast work for for what was then TNN, mm-hmm. TNT, off weekends. Again, we had a few more back then. I'd go do a truck race or I'd go do an Xfinity Series race. There were even some weekends, uh, it was through Patty Wheeler's company, World Sports, that my deal with them was um, – 
if they came to me about an hour and a half before the race on Saturday and I felt comfortable walking away and going and doing pit road or even doing the booth, that I would do it. But if they came to me and I said, look, we're not running well, I'm not doing it, that was our agreement. So I did maybe from 95 through 2000, even went to to Homestead and did a couple of races for CBS. They had Xfinity and Homestead and and trucks in Vegas, and they didn't have enough announcers. Um, I'd do eight or ten a year. I enjoyed it. You made a little bit of money. Um, I never saw myself doing it as a living. I mean, I figured the day that they put me six feet under, I'd be going four tires next stop. <laughs> uh, I just never visualized it. It never was a, a, a thought. I didn't know how long I would keep doing it part-time. But, you know, they, they signed the new TV contract actually the week of Homestead of 1999. And because when we got to Homestead is when we, we heard the announcement, you know, that, that NBC and Turner had bought the second half. Fox was going to do the first half starting in 01. So we go run the race and we go, you know, to New York for the banquet and get come back in uh, mid-December. Wasn't quite the holidays. And I was in the body shop working with our guy on one of our Daytona cars covered in Bondo dust from head to toe. And they paged me to the phone, and right outside the body shop was a phone on the wall. I picked it up, and it was an Australian-speaking gentleman. He introduced himself as David Hill, the chairman of Fox Sports. And he says, uh, I know it's early. We're well over a year out. As you probably know, we've signed the TV package for 2001. We've watched some tapes of stuff you've done. As you may or may not already even know, we've already hired Daryl Waltrip. As our driver analyst, we have no idea who our play-by-play guy is going to be, but we would at least like to have some conversations with you about maybe our crew chief analyst. I didn't even know what to say. I didn't know whether to say, yeah, no, okay, maybe. <laughs> he said, I, he said, I realize I've probably just yeah. dropped a bomb on you, but he said, you know, let's, let's talk after the holidays. So I talked to Linda about it, and, you know, I have no idea. I, 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 and, and my biggest problem, I just had signed a three-year deal with RCR that the first year was 2000, so I still had two more years. And I'd been a little aggressive with Richard. I said, look, you've stuck me with this cat named Mike Skinner. You're going to damn pay me some money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as the spring came on, Fox started calling a little bit more. And finally they said, look, we got an idea. During the Xfinity Series race, we're going to set up a little makeshift booth and do 100 laps of the Xfinity Series race. He said, we got some other people we're going to look at. We're, we're not just looking at you. He said, but why don't you come do 30 or 40 laps with DW up there? And actually, Mike Joyce still was not in the picture. It was Rick Allen that they were using for this audition. So I snuck around and went to the motorhome and changed clothes and went up there and did 30 or 40 laps with Daryl, and it felt – in fact, the irony – well, that's getting a little ahead of myself, so I won't go there yet. But anyhow, it felt good, you know, good chemistry. Daryl and I really never had worked with each other. Obviously, we had had some spirited moments (laughs) as competitors. You hadn't worked with each other. Yeah. (laughs) Against each other, maybe. That happens, and then Fox calls me, and they, they kind of make me an offer. And the good news is uh, it, was, it was really 
pretty much the same money that I was making as a crew chief, which only at the end of the day, that's good. I can slide that aside and not let that be an element that they're offering me two times what I'm making or two times less what I'm making. It's really tit for tat. In fact, if I took it, I was actually going to be leaving a little bit on the table because no longer was I going to get a courtesy car to drive. Uh, no longer was I going to get a bonus for winning a race or sitting on a post. So there was a little bit that I would be leaving to do this deal. The good news also is they were only offered me a two-year deal. Two years with a two-year option. Fox. So Fox was. Okay. So I'm thinking, okay, if I go and do this deal and they don't like me or I don't like them, I can come back and do this. In the month of June, finally, finally, July comes and Fox is getting a little bit. They had made the decision they wanted to make me the offer, that I was their number one choice, but they needed an answer. And I kept putting them off. And the hours that my wife and I spent at our kitchen table hashing this over is endless. No telling. And so anyhow, uh, I finally made a decision I wanted to do it. But I knew how I had this little bit of a of a hurdle called a contract with RCR. So late August, uh, we had the off week before Indy, and I really wanted to get this resolved before Indy. So I called Sandra, his personal assistant. I says, "Where's Richard?" She said, "Larry, he's in Montana this week." I said, "When's he coming back?" She said, "He'll be back over the weekend, you know, for Indy next week." I said, "Well, look, make a big note on your desk about Larry Mack." as early as possible next week. I need to meet with Richard. So sure enough, he gets back, and she paged me on Monday or Tuesday and said, hey, Richard's up here if you want to come up here and chat with him. So I go up there, and Richard's office was a little intimidating. There was no <laughs> racing hardware in it. It was wild sheep bears and buffaloes and, and lions and bears. <laughs> and so it's a little intimidating anyhow. So I go in, I sit down. And I didn't, I didn't go into no small talk. I laid it on the table. And when I finished telling him my spill, his face got about as red as an apple, and the veins started popping out the side of his neck. And I went, holy crap, what have I done? This man's going to kill me. <laughs> he finally kind of settled down. He said, no, 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 no. He says, I'm not happy about this. But he said, Larry, I can tell you're very sincere in why you want to do this, that you've been doing this for... 20 years, and you've got young kids, and it maybe will give you more time with your family. I get it. I'm going to live with it. Ah. But, Mr. McReynolds, <laughs> you and I have a contract. Oh, boy. this all. And Fox had already told everybody, when you come to us, you come clean. Yeah, we don't. Yeah. We're not buying nobody out of no contracts or yeah. negotiating. You come to us, you better be squeaky clean. He said, "But we have a contract," and I'm thinking, "Boy, this ought to be good." And in my mind, I'm thinking back to that meeting about eight months prior, where I was kind of cocky and arrogant and said, "Look, you've put me with Skinner. You're going to pay me this and this and this," and and they went with it. I said, "Well, okay." He said, no, you know, there's other ways of working stuff out. He said, two things. You are in charge of finding your replacement. He said, and what it's going to cost you, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, here we go. He said, no. He said, as you know, we leave Thursday to head to Indy. As tradition goes, both race teams, we go out together and have dinner Thursday night when we land. We go to St. Elmo's. He said, here's how we're going to work this deal out. As always, when we go there, RCR will buy the food, you buy the wine, and we'll call this still even. I couldn't get out of that damn office fast enough. <laughs> and you know what? Once we got there, 
He didn't even make me buy the wine. That's just Did he kind of, not? That's yeah. just the kind of person Richard Childress is. Hello, Scene Ball Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. I'm so glad that racing is back. It's nice to see it on TV. And of course, it's been nice to continue to be able to listen to the Scene Ball Podcast with Rick and Steve and all their guests. And of course, they just hit the milestone 100th podcast. And I'm so proud of what Rick and Steve have been able to do with the Scene Vault Podcast in preserving the history of this great sport. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into everything that happens at the Scene Vault Podcast. And at QWare, we are proud to be a part of it. We also know that it takes a lot of time and effort to take care of the places where you work. And we want you to check out QWare and see what we can do when it comes to facility maintenance. We are the most powerful, most simple to use computerized maintenance management system on the planet. So check us out at QWareCMMS.com and see what we can do for your facility maintenance team in helping to keep your campus and your facility up and running. Now let's get back to the podcast. In terms of all-time comebacks in NASCAR history, I'm going to put Ernie Irvin at or very near the top of the list because for him to get the diagnosis that he did after his accident at Michigan in August of 1994 and then to make his comeback a little more than a year later and then to win in 1996 at New Hampshire and then I think he also won later that year. I think it was at Richmond. I'm going to put that pretty near the top of the list in all-time NASCAR comebacks. Yeah, I think it should be at the top of the list. Also, let's not forget Tim Richmond, who went away from racing for a while because of illness and came back and won immediately, right out of the box. That was really a magnificent comeback for him. Unfortunately, his career did not last. And Steve, for Ernie to come back, it really was the stuff of miracles. That's all you can chalk that up to. Now, at that point, it was pretty much mission complete for Larry McReynolds. And he said as much when Ernie won at New Hampshire, he said that he went into the media center and he introduced Ernie, said, ladies and gentlemen of the press, mission complete. Ernie Irvin is back where he belongs in victory lane. And again, I think it says a lot for Larry Mack because he stayed the course. Absolutely. And because Larry was there and stayed the course and helped Ernie get back on top, that enhanced Larry's reputation as a crew chief very much. Larry Mack gets through 1995, the struggles that he had with Del Jarrett, getting Del Jarrett up to speed in the 28 car. He dealt with the issues of Ernie wanting to get back into the 28 car and wanting to maybe kind of rush his comeback a little bit. Then in 1996, Robert Yates Racing forms a two-car team, Ernie in the 28 car and DJ in the 88 car. And Larry Mack is Ernie's crew chief, but he's also kind of overseeing Del Jarrett's new team. And Larry was absolutely burning the candle at both ends. Yeah, he was, and it was going to catch up to him too. I don't care how passionate you are about what you're doing. I don't care how important you think it is. If you burn the candle at both ends like Larry Mack was, something eventually is going to have to give. Now, in 1996, Robert Yates Racing had a fantastic year. 
Dale Jarrett won the Daytona 500. Dale Jarrett won the Brickyard 400. He won four races in all. Ernie won a couple of races, but Larry McReynolds was beat to a pulp. Absolutely. And you can understand why, because he had to devote his time to not one, but two teams. And when you're trying to do the best you can for both teams in the time allotted, it's, it's hard. It got to wear you down. And it did for Larry's case. They go to Rockingham late in the 1996 season and Gary Nelson of all people comes to him in the garage. And Gary was at the time, the Winston cup director. And he, <laughs> he was kind of coming around to kind of shoo them out of the garage because the 28 bunch, they were checking off items on their checklist and they were making sure that this bolt was tightened. And they were the last to put the car cover over the car. And Gary Nelson come over and, basically just pulled the garage door down and said, you guys are done. Get out of the garage. But in doing that, Gary kind of made a comment to Larry Mack that there was a team in the garage that wanted to talk to him. I don't think that Larry Mack was looking to go anywhere, but of course that's going to get your attention. Well then, well, who is it? Gary said, well, uh, I don't know if I should really be doing this, but the three team wants to talk to you. And so at that time, the three team being interested in talking to you, that was a pretty big deal. Oh, yeah. By all means. I mean, you have got to say to yourself, I've got to go listen to these guys. This is Dale Earnhardt. This is a three team. Andy Petrie had left after the 1995 season. And then in 1996, David Smith, the team's longtime Jack man, a longtime employee, and Bobby Hutchins, who was like a, a team engineer, at the time, he was one of the very first team engineers in the sport. They had kind of been co-crew chiefs, and I think David kind of took care of the personnel and putting them where they needed to go, and Bobby kind of took care of the car in particular. So I think Richard and Dale wanted to go with a more traditional crew chief, and they got in touch with Larry Mack, and I love this story, okay? Larry's wife, Linda had gotten him tickets to the World Series between the Braves and the Yankees. And this was in Atlanta. And he gets to his seats there in the outfield. And there is Kelly Earnhardt, just by chance, evidently. They're sitting right next to each other. Now that is quite a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, later in the game, Larry Mack notices Kelly talking on her cell phone and he's like, who in the world talks on a cell phone at a ball game? <laughs> That's how new cell phones were at the time because now everybody talks on their phone all sure. the time, no matter where they are. But he sees her talking on her cell phone and he doesn't know who it is. But then she kind of taps him on the shoulder and says, here, take this. It's for you. And it was Dale Earnhardt. <laughs> how and about that? Dale is saying, hey, this is Dale you going to do this damn deal or not? <laughs> and so, you know, Larry Mack's like, hey, I'm trying to watch the World Series here. That's how that contact got made. Kelly Earnhardt has made a lot of deals for her brother, Dale Jr. But in this instance, she was a deal maker in helping to put Larry McReynolds at Richard Childress Racing with her dad behind the wheel. Now, I got to say this. It should be noted here that I texted Larry. And I emailed Kelly 
about what game it was. Was it game one or two? I, I can't remember what games were in Atlanta, what games were in New York. And Steve, neither one of them could remember any of the details of the World Series game <laughs> that they attended. Now, come on. <laughs> I, this is the World Series. Yeah, they well, couldn't you even would remember think so. who won the game. I can't even remember myself who won the series. Were the Yankees? Yeah, well, unfortunately. And yes, oh, okay. I said, unfortunately, <laughs> the Yankees won the series. Okay. All right. I guess it goes without saying that neither one of them caught a foul ball or anything. Now, I've seen you chase a foul ball. <laughs> it's like a locomotive going wow. <laughs> Get out of his way. Get out of his way. <laughs> Incoming. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, then on the flight over to the first exhibition race in Japan, members of the three team kept coming up to Larry Mack on the plane and asking him if he's going to make the move. They were kind of politicking for him to come over. Sure. Full disclosure here, Steve, I made the trip to Japan that year and the rumor that RCR was going to hire Larry Mack was flying pretty fast and furious. It was out there. And I went to RC to ask him about it. And he said that there wasn't anything to the rumor. (laughs) What did you expect? The deal wasn't done yet because Larry Mack said that he didn't meet until I think he said the Friday after Thanksgiving, which was after the trip to Japan. But I think RC told me just a little bit of a fib there. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Just a little, just a tiny white lie. (laughs) The truth, shall we say. (laughs) But Larry Mack sat down with Richard at his condo in Charlotte, like I said, the Friday after Thanksgiving, and they came to a deal. Now, coming to an agreement with RCR was one thing, but then he had to go and tell Robert Yates and Ernie Irvin what he was doing. Now, you can just imagine how that went over with them, but also, at the same time, how difficult it must have been for Larry Mack. Yeah, absolutely, especially after he had given – Robert Yates' teams so much of himself, you know? Yeah. Kinda, you have to think twice about things like that. But, again, this was a chance to work for the three-team in Dale Earnhardt, and I don't think Robert Yates is going to stand in his way. Larry Mack went to Daytona, and the morning of the race, a couple of his crew guys decide, uh, they've decided the night before the race that they were going to go out and have themselves a, a time out on the town and evidently they didn't show up on the morning of the 500 until shortly before the race. And so this is a kind of a test very early on of how Larry Mack was going to handle things. And these weren't just support guys. These weren't just sign holders. These weren't just guys handing water bottles over the wall. They were supposed to be going over the wall and actually doing the pit stop. So well, I, as I recall, Larry uh, met that challenge pretty well. He met that challenge yeah. by sitting them down right that day. They had to press the, the backups into service. The pit stops that day were kind of up and down. They weren't the greatest across the board. So here's Dale Earnhardt. This is his 19th try at the Daytona 500. He's got a patchwork pit crew during pit stops. They have an up and down day on pit road. And then, of course, that's the race where Dale got turned over on the backstretch and then came back around. An iconic image of him driving that battered car. 
that was a huge test of Larry Mack's leadership. And I think overall he met it very well. It was a very tough decision for him to make to sit down two of his pit crew guys because he knew that the pit crew would not be at its best without the veterans, but he had to maintain discipline and maintain order. So he set them down. The season did not get a whole lot better from there, and Delon Hart went winless in 1997 for the first time in 18 years. Hard to believe. 18 years. That's a long streak to be putting together winning races. Talk about things being tough. They were tough on there when he was overseeing two teams over Robert Yates Racing, but it was also at Robert Yates Racing they'd experienced some of his greatest moments as a crew chief, not the least of which was helping Ernie Irvin get back to victory lane after his accident, and that elevated his status. Now, he goes over to Dale's team and can't win a race. Now, how do you think that makes him feel after what he'd accomplished over at Robert Yates? He's got to lose some confidence, I would think. Well, I think that Larry Mack is probably his own worst critic, but by the same token, if you work for Dell Earnhardt, you were in the spotlight and Earnhardt Nation has its eyes squarely on you. And like I said in the intro, there were some who thought that Larry Mack was a spy sent over from the Ford camp trying to sabotage Dell's career, trying to sabotage Chevrolet. This was not a good situation. The NASCAR Illustrateds that I got in that big purchase that I made a few weeks ago there was a letter to the editor in one of the issues that I got, and this lady was just absolutely blasting Larry Mack for doing some of the broadcasting work that he right. was doing at the time, doing the freelance stuff that he was doing as a pit reporter. And she was like, hey, listen, you're paid to be a crew chief. You're Dale Earnhardt's crew chief. That's what you need to be focusing on. You need to cut out all this frivolity and stuff. That's extra. You don't need to be worried about that. You need to worry about Dell Earnhardt getting in victory lane. And so, yeah, he was taking heat from every side. And Steve, it was so bad that he would not even leave the racetrack with his uniform top on. Now, not that people wouldn't know who he was anyway. Right. But, but he, why attract attention to yourself when you're catching all this heat? Yeah. You have to play safe. He even considered hiring a full-time bodyguard. <laughs> I wouldn't blame him. They go to Daytona in 1998, and that is one of my fondest memories. That was my sidebar that day, was to do a sidebar on the reaction of Dale's crew to his Daytona 500 win. And so when Dale crossed under the white and yellow flags, and then when he came back around to take the checkered, I was in his pits. That was a pretty special moment. I'm pretty sure it was. You were in the middle of it all right there. Yeah, that was a pretty cool place to be in. But then they go to Rockingham the next week, and they have to take a provisional to get into the race. But, Steve, things kind of came to a head at Richmond in the spring, and Larry basically blew up at Dale in the holler and told him that he needed to decide what he wanted to do with his career and Larry Mack would decide if he wanted to come along for the ride. Now, he turned around, and according to Larry Mack, he slammed the door out of the holler, and people didn't talk to Dell Earnhardt like that. No, I'm surprised Larry did, but then again, he was in a different state of mind. Dell finished 21st, two laps down to race winner Terry Labonte, 
And the next morning, as Larry Mack and Linda and their kids were leaving the racetrack to head back home to North Carolina, he got a call from Richard Childress to come see him at the shop. Pretty ASAP. You can sort of guess what Larry thought that meant. You'd be foolish to think anything other than, I'm fixing to lose my job. All the way home from Richmond to welcome, he's expecting to get fired. But instead, he and Kevin Hamlin were going to switch places. Larry's going to be Mike Skinner's crew chief, and Kevin is going to be Dale Earnhardt's crew chief. And that had to be kind of an awkward position for Larry Mack because he left a very high-profile job at Robert Yates Racing as Ernie Irvin's crew chief. They were very successful together. And the fact of the matter is he didn't make the move to become Mike Skinner's crew chief. Now, that's nothing against Mike Skinner. He had won the Rookie of the Year title. He had won the truck championship at that point, but he wasn't Dell Earnhardt. But Larry Mack decided, you know what? I'm, I'm going to take this gig here. And ultimately, he was not able to get Mike Skinner into victory lane here in the States. They did win in Japan, but that had to have been a tough decision. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when you're working with a guy like Dale Earnhardt and you can't win races, uh, you obviously feel like there's something wrong. And apparently, R.C. thought there was something wrong as well. He did not want to lose Larry and his talents by any stretch of imagination. He said, maybe it will work better if I just change his environment. He made that experiment to uh, let Kevin Hamlin go ahead and take it on for Dale and let Larry move over to Mike Skinner. It was an experiment, in my opinion. He was trying to find out if he could make uh, Larry fit better in his organization. I honestly believe that if you want to know how Larry McReynolds really felt about his time at RCR, he did admit that he almost wished that he had rode things out at Robert E.A. Tracy. He did say that. He said that if he had stayed at Robert Yates Racing, he wasn't sure that he would have ever seen the inside of the Fox Broadcasting booth. He also said that there might even still be a Robert Yates Racing. For Larry Mack to admit that, I think, said a lot. However, there was this really cool experience that Larry Mack was able to have with Dale The May Charlotte race week in the year 2000, Larry left the racetrack and he went to his daughter's school to pick her up from a field trip that the school had been on. Now, Dell's daughter, Taylor Nicole, was at the same school in the same grade and had been on the same field trip. And Dell was there to pick her up. And while they were sitting there in the parking lot waiting on their daughters to get there and they for whatever reason were going to be a couple hours late they notice each other waiting in their separate cars and dale motions larry to come on over and they had this talk and dale actually admitted that day to larry mack that they had never really had a chance together because of the back injuries that dale had sustained and the discomforts that he was going through i did talk to larry a while back about his time with dale and he said to me that Dale did tell him that he could never really get comfortable in that car because of his past injuries. Dale also told him that he never really blamed Larry for that. It was just a situation as it was, and he too wished it had turned out better for the both of them. 
but he wanted Larry to know that it wasn't his fault. And Larry told me that made him feel a lot better about what he had done with RCR. That conversation at least let Larry understand. It didn't necessarily make him not miss Robert Yates Racing, but at least he knew where Dell had been coming from. And then Larry Mack makes the decision at the end of the 2000 season to make the move to the broadcasting booth. And Steve, he has been doing that now for what, 20 years now? Yeah, 20 years. I believe that it has worked out for Larry Mack. And again, I am so appreciative to him for sitting down with us again. He didn't have to do that. He absolutely didn't have to do that. But Larry Mack is a master storyteller. And I, I think that came through loud and clear in this interview. Oh, yeah. No question about it. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. And again, this pickup that he made of the former racing memorabilia shop, that is a treasure trove. I couldn't even tell you all the stuff that Brian has been posting, but that was a huge, huge pickup for him. He is letting his customers have a crack at it. And I'm telling you what's the truth is a huge inventory that he just picked up. So everybody needs to check that out. Yeah, there's so much stuff in there that you that someone would want. They might might think about taking out a loan <laughs> and getting your hands on some of that stuff. Steve, again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. That's SpeedwayTSJ.ETSY.com. Steve, the June 11th, 1998 issue of Winston Cup scene led off with your commentary about how the past might have been simpler, but it wasn't necessarily better. That was an item of discussion even back then. Oh, yeah. And it still goes on today. To me, this was the payoff passage. We all wax poetic about the good old days, often forgetting the hardships that came with them. It's true of NASCAR. It might have been simpler in the past, but there were problems. Safety, for example, was insufficient when compared to today. Several speedways struggled to make profits and thus couldn't renovate restrooms with dirt floors. (laughs) (laughs) Dirt floor by, okay. I was there. Now that is old school. (laughs) (laughs) There was constant rules haggling, yes, even more so than today which led to frustration and discontent. In some cases, this frustration and discontent was so great, teams simply pulled out of racing. Money for most competitors was so scarce, they bonded together and talked of strikes, boycotts, and lawsuits. Many felt they were simply in servitude for NASCAR. No matter how simple the old days were, they had to change. As times changed, NASCAR had to do likewise if it hoped to survive. Yeah, there's so many things about the so-called good old days that were not good at all. And I just gave a list of them right there. Uh, Money was a problem for teams that didn't have any money. 
They didn't have big sponsorships until later. And NASCAR, especially, this is my biggest point, was nowhere near as safe as it is today. Nowhere near. It didn't seem like NASCAR really wanted to bother with it. Most of the time, it was forced into it by situations or, let's face it, accidents or worse that happened that, that they tried to see could never happen again. Now, this was in 1998, I was saying that, and it still wasn't where it should have been. A non-starter with me when it comes to conversations about NASCAR is to talk about they were real men back in the days and they, yeah. they didn't need no Hans devices and they didn't need soft walls and they didn't need restrictor plates and all that stuff. Nah. Uh, don't start. No, right? that is crazy. I'll go this far. If you say that, if you think that they were real men back in the day and they didn't need Hans devices, they didn't need restrictor plates, you've never driven a race car. Well, that's for sure. Period. End of discussion. It's one thing to say somebody else doesn't need to be safe, but when it's your hind end in the seat in the race car, yeah, I want every safety measure. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. I want every safety measure available. So then came the news update that Larry McReynolds and Kevin Hamlin were going to be switching jobs at Richard Childress Racing. And I've got to say, Scene was on top of this deal. The race in Richmond was Saturday night. And Larry Mack met with RC on Sunday and said that he went home to sleep on it until Monday morning. So things had to have been moving pretty doggone fast for us to be able to get this in the paper so quickly. Well, you know, the paper had a terrific staff and uh, there were some real news hounds on that staff. Uh, but the one thing that I do have to say is that when things like this started to happen and it looked like it was going to happen quickly. Sometimes we get a call from the parties involved because they wanted scene to have the story and knew scenes deadlines past Monday just were no good. So many of the time we got the story from the source on a Monday and they contacted us. Well, I know for a fact that more than one press conference has been scheduled around Winston Cup Saints print schedule. That's right. Somebody would say, well, we've got a press conference on Monday. Then is there any way that we can go ahead and get the news so we can get it in the paper? And others would say, well, when's the paper going to be out? So they would schedule the press conference in order to coincide with our paper coming out. Right. That was a huge thing, and it was a huge sign of respect for the new source that we were. And that was pretty cool to be able to have that kind of relationship with the competitors. And I was very proud of a lot of stories that we got in the paper and got scoops on and everything. And I certainly think that that was the case for this story about Larry Mack and Kevin Hamlin yeah. switching jobs. But RC said in this story, it wasn't that there was a problem between them. We just weren't moving ahead and finding the problem. We felt that by switching the two guys around, maybe we could look at things from a different angle. Both are very talented people. You look at our cars and look at the quality of people and everything we've got, and you say, why is this thing not running? So we had to make some kind of change. Now, Kevin Hamlin was in his fifth year as a crew chief. He had started out with Rick Mast at the number one car and Richard Jackson as the owner. 
And then he had moved over to RCR in 1997, where he helped Mike Skinner win the Rookie of the Year title. Now, RC went on to say, I believe the style of the two crew chiefs will mesh better with our two drivers. Kevin is a more laid-back individual, and I think that will work well with Dale. And Larry is more of a hands-on person, and that is what Mike needs at this stage of his career. Now, Kevin Hamlet would remain with Dale throughout the rest of his career. He was actually Dale's crew chief, the 2001 yeah. Daytona 500. As for the race itself, the, <laughs> the first 370 laps of the race were fairly standard for a Winston Cup race, but then in the last 30 laps, all heck broke loose. <laughs> and there were four cautions and a red flag that nobody expected lap 372 rusty wallace got into jeff gordon while they were racing for the lead and that sent jeff into the wall and afterward jeff did one of those walking talks where he was mad and the media members were falling all over themselves trying to keep up and yeah (laughs) like i said guess whose sidebar that was that night and Steve, I hated, I hated doing those walking talks. Hated I have it. Done, I have done plenty of them in my career, I can tell you that. And they're not any kind of fun whatsoever. The funniest one, this was Rusty Wallace, and it was at Richmond, but it was a different race. He was doing one of the walks and talks, and there was a cameraman that was walking backwards trying to keep Rusty in the shot. Right as we got into the garage, something happened and the cameraman tripped. And so there was like a 20 person pile up (laughs) going into the garage. So that was going on that night. And that was my sidebar. But one of our photographers got a shot of me and Jim Phillips and Bob Dillner trying our best to keep up with Jeff that night. And that's probably one of my favorite pictures of my time at Winston Cup scene, but Jeff said that night, I think this is what he said, trying to keep up with him. (laughs) He said, somebody can't stand to get past, I guess. I don't know. I came off of turn two and I had the spot on him. He pinched me up into the wall. We rubbed down the back straightaway. Then I finally get in front of him. He just drives into the side of me and spins me out. That's about it. Now, Jeff had given Rusty a little bit of a shot the year before to win at Bristol, but Rusty said that this deal at Richmond was just racing. It was not payback. He said, I don't see any controversy going on. I drove down in the corner. He drove down in the corner. We touched a little racing accident. We got together. He spun, and I went on. That was it. To Rusty, that was it, and he wasn't going to elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> the wreck dropped Jeff to a 37th place finish, dropped him out of the points lead. Jeremy Mayfield went to the top of the running order by 25 points over Rusty, who was his teammate at Penske Racing at the time. Jeff dropped a third, 46 points back, and Steve in all, the top six drivers, Jeremy, Rusty, Jeff, Mark Martin, Del Jarrett, and Terry Labonte were separated by less than 100 points. Now, Jeff would go on to kind of dominate the season and win the championship by a fairly healthy margin, but at that point, there were six drivers within 100 points. Which is a good thing, by the way. A very good thing. Then Ricky Rudd spun on the backstretch just after the restart 
while racing Dell Jarrett and Ken Schrader for the lead. And by the time the smoke cleared, Johnny Benson, Kyle Petty, Chad Little, Kevin LePage, Ty Bodine, and Robert Presley had been caught up in it. Sounds the race, more like Talladega, though. <laughs> <laughs> the race went back to green, and the radiator hose came off of LePage's car, which triggered another accident that also collected Derek Cope, Jerry Nadeau, and Mike Skinner. <laughs> and, <laughs> Dale Jarrett was in the lead when that caution came out, but then NASCAR put the race under the red flag so crews could clean up and allow the race to finish under green. And that did not please Dale Jarrett or any of the Robert Yates racing guys because, like I said in the intro, this was a new thing. This was basically out of the blue. Now, if they had red flagged a race before then, in order to let the race finish under green, I don't know when it was. Yeah, I don't either, but let's remember something. For years, NASCAR has been hearing from the fans who say, we don't like race to end under the caution. We want it to end under the green. Well, in this particular instance, NASCAR obviously thought there was enough debris and junk on the track to stop the car for a cleanup. Now, that's what NASCAR was taking. And by stopping them, then they can go on and race under the green like the fans want. I'm not sure whether that was motivating NASCAR at the time, but it was, to me, a chance for them to give the fans what they wanted. And naturally, it's not going to sit well with all the drivers. Well, I certainly am not going to say that it was a bad decision by NASCAR to let the race end under green, but because it hadn't happened before, that's what had DJ spun out. It was just something that he didn't expect. Exactly. That's my point. The race went back to green on lap 397, and the next time around, Terry Labonte went to the apron in turn three to get under DJ got into him a little bit or got into him a whole lot, depending on who you're listening to. (laughs) And then Terry went on to win the race. Now, after the checkered flag, DJ kind of slammed into Terry on the cool down lap and then came to the pumps and he screeched the tires when he came to a stop. And Steve, that is just this memory that I have. And again, I got the sidebar that night. So I was there at the pumps. And I will never, ever, ever, ever forget the image of Dale coming to a stop at the pumps and being so angry. There wasn't no quoting him at that point <laughs> because well, you it would, would have been a lot of stars and bleeps and yeah, whatever. You couldn't print it even if he did talk. <laughs> but what was so funny is he was having himself a fit. And I mean, he took that steering wheel off and he slammed it on the dash and he was yelling and he was fussing and ESPN came to him and did the TV interview. And it was like his demeanor immediately changed when the TV cameras were on. DJ and crew chief Todd Parrott had decided not to pit under the caution for Jeff Gordon's accident. But when the race was red flagged, that strategy kind of went out the window. So he was mad at NASCAR. And then he was also mad at Terry for the on-track incident. So which was he more mad at? And DJ said, I guess the whole night, the way everything ended up. If it was something that went on all the time with red flagging the race, that's one thing. But that's not the way it's been in the past. 
why start now? Now that was the red flag, but then there was also the run in with Terry. And to that, he said, then, yeah, I'm upset at getting run over. If he was up beside me, that's one thing, but he hit me in the rear bumper and turned me sideways. That's what I'm more upset about. He was trying to pass me on the inside, but all he was trying to do was outdrive me down into the corner. He didn't have any portion of the racetrack there, and he decided to run into me. That's all right. We'll remember that. Another day will come around. I'm sure his tires might have helped a little bit, but there's no reason to run in there and hit somebody. He would have never passed me if that hadn't happened. I think that he knew that. Well, obviously, Dale made his case, didn't he? He made his case, but also, I think you also have to consider the source. Terry Labonte was not known for being that kind of racer necessarily. He wasn't known as a dirty driver. No. Overall. Well, I agree with you 100%, and I do think that Dale stated his case very well, but I'm convinced he's more upset at NASCAR for the red flag because that spoiled the strategy that he and Todd Parrott had set up. Dale probably would have been unchallenged to the victory had the race remained under green, but it did not. And I think, therefore, losing his chance at victory by a red flag that came out and had never come out under similar circumstances before is what he was really upset at. Well, Jeff Gordon and Dale Jarrett were not the only people who were unhappy after this race because this was short track racing. (laughs) And there was a notebook item that kind of detailed some of the hurt feelings that night. Robert Presley was not happy with Michael Waltrip after an early race accident. Robert said one of them cars wanted a caution, and he got one. (laughs) (laughs) And then Jeff Green made his first start for Felix Sabatis that night, although the sidebar had him identified as David Green, which I'm sure went over real well with Jeff, but, hey, that's besides the point. (laughs) But Jeff Green got together with Ted Musgrave on lap 187, And Felix actually walked over to Ted Musgrave's pit to kind of voice his displeasure. So Felix was taking it up a little bit. Wouldn't be the last time that Felix would do something like that. Wouldn't be the first, wouldn't be the last. (laughs) And Jeff Green said, that's the second time he spun me out in over a year. If he's got a problem with me, he needs to come see me, not tear up the guy's race car. And Ted responded by saying, Jeff Green was two laps down and I'm on the lead lap. He raced me really tight, and he didn't give me any room. We were just inches apart all the time, and he was just pinning me down on the bottom. When you race that tight, trying that hard, things are going to happen. Sometimes it will work out, and sometimes it won't. This time, it didn't. I thought that it was very, very interesting that in the scene on the circuit section, there was an item where Mike Helton addressed the possibility of midweek primetime events. Now that's 22 years ago. And this issue is still, is still around, especially this year with all the schedule redos. And well, look what the virus has done to raising among other things. We have had some Wednesday, Thursday events. Now, according to Mike, it wasn't going to happen anytime soon. He said, the problem becomes, how can you make it happen? You could argue that NASCAR very much has become a weekend sport. We know what does work. As fortunate as we have been, no one is anxious to change it. Why mess with it? Now, at that time, 
NASCAR was on a wave of popularity. Right. At that time, they didn't see the need for midweek races. Personally, I, I'm kind of leery of midweek races. I, I don't want to miss Survivor on Wednesday nights. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think track's a little, a little bit leery, too, because having a race on a weekend or a Sunday when people expect there to be racing is, is one thing. They expect to go to the track on a weekend. How are you going to make a sale for a Wednesday night or a Thursday night? Now, we did say that NASCAR, because of the rescheduling due to the virus this year, has had Wednesday and Thursday night events. But because of the virus, there have been no fans there, or a very small number of them. And that's quite a different tale than having to sell that race to people buying tickets. There was also a feature story in this issue on Humpy Wheeler, who was at Charlotte Motor Speedway at the time. And Humpy wanted to bring back a convertible division. He saw this convertible division rivaling the Bush Series and the Truck Series. No. And I, I don't know. I think that they actually did do some Tuesday night exhibition races or whatever, but nothing re- ever really came out of it. No, and Humpy also created a sportsman circuit, which was a low-budget racing circuit that allowed guys who otherwise would not have any chance to run a stock car race, the opportunity to do just that. And it, it was not a success by any stretch of the imagination. And for a lot of different reasons, safety right. being number one. Right. And I think that was probably one of the things that went on with this convertible division that Humpy Wheeler envisioned. Because basically, this feature story said that the car that they got, I think they said they actually got it from Base Motorsports and Randy LaJoy's Bush Series team at the time. Right. And basically all they did was cut the sheet metal off the roof and you had kind of an exposed roll mm-hmm. cage. But I'm not thinking too positively about a no. convertible division just, be- no, just for the safety aspect. Yeah, never happened. And Steve, finally, talk about what we're trying to do with the scene vault being a way to connect the sports past with the present. There was a photo section in this issue called the scrapbook section. And in the scrapbook was a picture of Mike and Tina Dillon. Tina being Richard Kittler's daughter. Yes. And Mike and Tina being the parents of Austin and Ty Dillon. How about that? <laughs> so how cool is that, that Mike and Tina were in this issue just as a, as a picture of them in the garage. And now all these years later, they are still in the news as the parents of Austin and Ty. I'm Steve Mill, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Here is my weekly accountability update on my walking challenge with Marcus Lamonis. I now stand at 4,834 miles, leaving me 159.66 miles short. Of 5,000. I think you're going to do it there, Rick. I really do. I'm slowly but surely whittling away at it. And 159, let's call it 160 miles. 160 miles is still a long ways. Sure it is. But at the start of this year, I had over 600 miles to go. 
So yeah, 156.66 miles, 160 miles is still a long way, but I can actually begin to allow myself to imagine getting to 5,000 at my current pace. If I'm able to do 24 miles a week, I will get there on or about Saturday, September the 19th. Wow, Rick, there's a small light at the end of this tunnel. You see it? Go for it, Rick. You can do it. I hope it's not a freight train. (laughs) (laughs) I did a search on Amazon.com for trekking pole grips, and everything that came up was adhesive for pole dancers. (laughs) (laughs) Now there's an image for you. (laughs) That's part of you pole dancers. (laughs) 